Section 26 of Volume 1 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller, translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Subheading 18. Appreciation of the Practical Grounds. Let us now endeavor to comprehend the meaning of those practical reasons which the Protestants allege in their cause. These reasons are the following. 1. The first is that in this way only, quote-unquote, troubled consciences can receive a powerful and adequate solace. For, so say the Protestants, if instrumental faith, which clings to Christ alone, who hath offered up satisfaction for us, possess the power of justifying, hearts, sorely grieved on account of their sins, will then enjoy a steady interior peace. But this they never can attain to, if only the faith, which is manifested in love, faith evidenced in holiness of sentiment, be considered as the test of the children of God. For who is conscious of possessing the true love of God and holiness of feeling? 2. In the second place, the Protestants contend that, if the instrumental faith be regarded as the one conferring justification, everything is then referred to the divine mercy in Christ, and all glory rendered to the Redeemer. But so soon as faith, inasmuch as it comprises a circle of holy feelings, is to earn for us the approbation of heaven, then the glory, due to the Savior alone, is divided between him and us, or rather, withdrawn from him. In a word, by this way only can the merits of Christ, in their entire magnitude, be gratefully acknowledged. 3. The reason first assigned offers us, in fact, a very beautiful and very pleasing motive, and we see at once the sentiment which it is intended to cherish in the breast of men. This sentiment is humility, which, with an honest self-denial, refers all good to God as its primary source, and ascribes nothing good to man as such. And humility, therefore, must be regarded in fact as the motive of the third ground for this distinction between the two kinds of faith. Let us now examine the intrinsic worth of the first reason. It is certainly a great task for the true church to administer solid consolation to consciences sorely troubled and deeply agitated on account of their sins. But the solace so extended should be no false one, and that such an epithet must attach to the Protestant consolation we have already, on account of the distinction between the instrumental and the efficacious faith, full and just cause to apprehend. And why so? Let us hear the following dialogue betwixt Luther and a heart-seeking consolation. Quote, Thou sayest I have done no good work. I am for this too weak and frail. Such a treasure thou wilt not acquire by thy works, but thou shouldst hear the joyous message which the Holy Ghost proclaims to thee through the mouth of the prophet. For he saith to thee, Be joyous, thou barren, that bearest not, that is to say, that art not active in charity, as if he would say, Why art thou anxious, and art so troubled? For thou hast no cause to be anxious and to be troubled. But I am barren and lonely, and bear no children. Although thou buildest not on the righteousness of the law, nor bearest children like Hagar, it matters not. Thy righteousness is far higher and better, to wit, Christ, who is able to defend thee against the terrors and the curses of the law, for he became an anathema to thee, 
that he might redeem thee from the anathema of the law. Unquote. What an utterly false and dangerous application of the 27th verse of Galatians, chapter 4. Is not this replacing one part of faith by the other, and distinguishing the efficacious from the instrumental faith, in order that not merely in the defective condition, but in the utter absence of the former, the latter may be made to represent it? Here we find no solace but the encouragement of a false security, and the doctrine that it is only the faith working by charity which justifies, is reproached with being unable to rise above the low level of a mere legal justice. And what contradictions, too, we find here. Above, as we have seen, Luther termed faith a thoroughly good will, and here we find faith destitute of all will. Above, faith was described as an eternal, active principle, and here it appears before us as indolence itself. Above, it was a fresh living power, which doth not first ask whether and what it should do, but, before the question is put, is already prepared. Here it appears a thing that can only sigh and lament, and can never make progress, and which still, however, remains the true faith. Should the distinction accordingly between the active and the instrumental faith be meant undoubtedly to express the idea that faith justifies, yet not so much as it is active, still it would convey the sense that it justifies even when it is not active. Let us attentively consider once more some passages previously cited from Luther's writings. See subheading 16. Passages which only now, perhaps, will be completely understood. Let us especially weigh the words, quote, But if a man heareth that he should not believe in Christ, and yet that this belief availeth him nothing, nor is of use, unless love be added thereto, which imparts vigor to faith, and renders it capable of justifying man, then, without doubt, he will fall away from faith, despair, and think that if it be really so, that faith without love doth not justify, then it is undoubtedly profitless and nothing worth." Unquote. Luther's already cited description of the riches which flow to us from baptism is well worthy of our repeated attention. All these passages furnish so much evidence of the opinion which we have advanced respecting the real practical importance of the here alleged distinction between the two forms of one and the same faith. It is not to be denied that, according to Luther, the form of faith efficacious to holiness cannot appear without the other, which consists in the solacing apprehension to Christ's merits. But the latter can exist without the former, and indeed, in such a way, that, according to Luther's opinion, the faith and the forgiveness of sins through Christ would lose all value and all importance if such were not the case. This now is not the doctrine of St. Paul, who consoles us in a very different manner. Compare Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, chapter 8, verses 1 through 16, Galatians chapter 5, verses 6 through 22. In the Holy Spirit, let us cry out, quote, Abba, dear Father, but the fruits of the Spirit are charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, goodness, longanimity, mildness, faith, modesty, continency, chastity. Unquote. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit are accordingly not to be gained without love. 
in all other holy sentiments, and this the soul, whose scruples are silenced by Luther, clearly proves. Because it possessed no loving, gentle, and meek faith, therefore joy and peace were not its portion, and never would it obtain these alone, unless it were seduced into a culpable levity, or sought its satisfaction in carnal pleasures. The nature of that consolation, which the Catholic Church administers, we shall later have occasion more accurately to define. 2. Let us now proceed to the appreciation of the second of the practical grounds, which in the opinion of the Reformers so strongly enforced their view of faith as to render it not only laudable, but even commanded by the spirit of Christianity to such an extent that they characterized the opposite opinion as absolutely wicked. It would have been, in truth, a noble struggle between the different confessions if they had striven in an enlightened manner to surpass each other in the glorification of him whom they mutually revere as the source of all salvation but the sovereign rule according to which judgment should be given in this strife is this when we praise the holiest let there be nothing unholy let us endeavor clearly to apprehend the meaning of the reformer's assertion they think that the doctrine of the catholics that only the sanctified is the justified man only the lover of God is the beloved of God, has nothing above the level of vulgar and everyday maxims. For to love him who loves us is not rare even among men. Thus, if we would be agreeable to God, only in so far as the power of Christ really transforms us, put aside sin, and make us, in fact, worthy of becoming children of God, this is not a sufficient honor of the Redeemer. The conception of Christ and the value of his sufferings before God are not estimated sufficiently high, but if the merit of the sufferings of the Son of God be so exalted that its power can introduce us into heaven without its costing him or ourselves any effort for our preparatory purification, then what hath he achieved for us, and what is he able to achieve with his Father, appears in all its luster. The reformers conceived that the case was nearly the same as if a gentleman were to testify his favor to a friend by letting him introduce guests in their soiled traveling clothes without giving them, on that account, a less gracious welcome. But here the question is not about forms of decorum and ceremonial frivolity. It is about the inward adornment, that nuptial garment, which, under pain of removal from the banquet, according to the sentence of the Lord of Grace, who is also the Holy One, ought not to be wanting. Even the gentleman, in the case referred to, would suppose that the guests introduced to him in the manner described would entertain the same kindly feelings towards himself as the friend under whose auspices they were admitted. Having thus formed clear notions of the mode which the confessions deem most fitting for showing forth the glory of the Redeemer, it can no longer be a matter of doubt which of them renders the tribute most worthy of that Redeemer and now let us inquire into the misunderstandings that have led to a condemnation of the catholic doctrine it is scarcely possible perhaps to conceive any objection less cogent against the peculiar doctrines of the catholic church than the assertion that it considers the reconciliation of man with god partly as the work of christ partly as the work of man or what is the same 
that it divides between the Savior and the believer the glory of bringing the latter back to God. And this, forsooth, because Catholics represent the faith animated by love as agreeable to God. If the doctrine of Catholics were this, that the holy sentiments required of the Christian were obtained independently of Christ, and in this independence were acceptable to God, or even that Christ supplied only those virtues wherein we were deficient, then the above objection would doubtless be well founded. But as the Church expressly teaches that the entire spiritual life of the faithful, in so far as it is agreeable to God, flows absolutely from the source which is called Christ, how can there be here any question of a division of glory, or a thankless conduct towards the Redeemer, and a want of pious feeling? Undoubtedly the Church urgently demands of everyone to appropriate in a complete and vivid manner the power preferred in the Redeemer. Undoubtedly, she teaches that it is only by this living appropriation, by stamping Christ on our souls, we can become pleasing unto God. Namely, when all our feelings, all our thoughts, and will are filled with His vital breath. But to call this a dividing of glory with Christ is tantamount to asserting that a man exposed to danger of death from hunger, divides the honor of his deliverance with him who benevolently offers him food and drink, because the unhappy man makes use of the strengthening nurture and by that participation appropriates it to his own substance, and does not merely content himself with turning up a look of hope and confidence towards his benefactor. With this case, in fact, may it may be aptly compared the theory of Protestants in respect to the relation of the believers to Christ. But whoever is entangled in this error will perish in his sins, like the starving man whom he would take for his model, while he fancies he is rendering glory to the Savior alone. He will not be comprised in the number of those who exclaim, quote, Lord, Lord, be thou alone praised, but who, quote, do not the will of the Heavenly Father, unquote but this whole error is based on a confusion of the objective consummation of the atonement with its subjective approbation, see subheading 11, and the love which must first germinate from the faith and the grace and the love of God in Christ, though in a living faith it is already ripened into blossom and fruit, is so understood as if God remitted our sins on account of our love, whereas it is His voluntary gift. A misunderstanding of Scripture has had great share in producing this error. In the Bible, God is represented as loving men before they love Him. See 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. That is to say, as loving them without their love. Whereas the Catholic Church teaches that He only who loves God is beloved of God. Hereby the free, unmerited grace of God in Christ seems totally rejected, as if only through our love the love of God deserved to be acquired. What is to be said in reply to this? In answering this question, we connect with the first epistle of John, chapter 4, verse 10, numerous other passages which appear to contradict it, passages wherein it is expressly said that God loves only those who love Him. In the verse referred to, the love of God embracing the human race, Tunkujman, in the Redeemer, is announced, and at the same time the eternal mystery is unveiled, 
that God, through his Son, proffers forgiveness to all. But this universal eternal love of God is realized in the individual, only at the moment wherein he cooperates with the love of God revealed in the Redeemer, and, full of faith, stamps it on his heart and his will, so that, as this specific individual, he is, in effect, beloved of God at the moment only when the love hath become mutual. John chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Hence both forms of speech in Holy Writ are equally true. Hence the truth of the Catholic doctrine, which, in the article of justification, wherein this personal approbation of God's unmerited grace is the question at issue, necessarily adheres to the words of the scriptural text last referred to. 3. Let us now return to the relation which the distinction in question bears to humility. The principal virtue of the Pauline faith is, doubtless, humility, the unconditional resignation to God in Christ. Self-renunciation on the part of man and his deep conviction of possessing no sentiment agreeable to God without Christ. And it is not to be denied that a perception of this truth mainly influenced the reformers in their definition. But as they asserted that it was not the intrinsic worth of faith, that is to say, it was not a circle of closely connected virtues involved in faith, such as humility, love, self-denial, and the rest, which stamped on it the character of justification. A method was found of dispensing with humility, even in humility itself, and, in order to evince a true humility, it was taught that it was not humility in faith which rendered us acceptable to God. It is indeed a sign of true humility to be ignorant of itself and to conceal itself from its own view. But never hath a true humble man taught that humility doth not render us agreeable to the Deity. Were there any other means of awakening in our souls a heartfelt, vivid, persevering sense of the virtue of humility than faith in the merits of the Redeemer, by the acknowledgment of which alone man is compelled to go out of himself to renounce, without reserve, his own self-produced virtue, in order to live entirely in and by God, we should not then even stand in need of the merits of the Redeemer. So much is humility the cardinal point on which everything hinges, which must be called forth before everything else, because in this negative all positive is comprised. And this is not to make us acceptable to God, because, forsooth, no virtue can make us so. And it is precisely in the avowal that it is not humility, but faith only, which possesses this property, that true humility is to consist. Here the reformers were evidently misled by the most vague, the most confused, yet withal honorable feelings of the truly positive principle in the negative character of humility. They had no clear conception. Still less did they pause to reflect that it is one thing to lay down the doctrine that a man can be thoroughly good, and another to hold oneself as personally good. The latter would be the destruction of all religious life, while the former is its essential condition. The inextricable condition in which this doctrine involved the Protestants is well worthy of notice. According to their teaching, humility, like every other virtue, can be rightly found only where it is most urgently inculcated 
that the believer needs it not to render himself acceptable to God. And yet it is taught at the same time that on that account the Christian needs it not, as a holy sentiment, to obtain the favor of the deity, because like every other virtue, it appears always impure in man, that is to say, always marred by self-complacency and arrogance. Hence, if it were exacted as necessary to justification, man would never become just in the eyes of God. Thus, forsooth, true humility is to be engendered by a system of faith which establishes that there is no true humility even in the newborn, and true humility can acquire a solid foundation only by the doctrine of its impossibility, or at least its non-existence in this system. Either the doctrine that there is no true humility is right, and then such a doctrine can never produce true humility, because otherwise the doctrine itself would be false. Or, there is such a thing as true humility, and then the doctrine is false. Akin to this contradiction, or rather identical with it, though only in another form, is the following. In studying the writings of the Reformers, the thought has often involuntarily occurred to us that they entertained the opinion that it was something extremely dangerous to be really good, nay, that the principle of sanctity, so soon as it was on the point of acquiring complete dominion over a man, contained the germ of its own destruction, as such a man must needs become arrogant, fall into vainglory, liken himself to the Eternal, and contend with him for divine sovereignty. Hence the security of believers seemed to require that they should ever keep within themselves a good germ of evil, because in this state we are better off. Accordingly, the matter was so handled as if real goodness were incompatible with humility, and as if it were an evil only that this virtue flourished, whereas it was not considered that wickedness was in itself the contrary of true humility, and utterly excluded it. In the following passage, replete with wonderful naivete, the impression which, as we just said, the reading of the Reformer's writings has produced on our mind, has been recorded in felicitous language by Luther himself. Quote, Dr. Jonas said to Dr. Martin Luther, at supper time, he had that day in his lecture been commenting on the sentence of Paul in Second Timothy chapter 4, Reposita est mihi corona justite. There is laid up for me a crown of justice. Oh, how gloriously doth St. Paul speak of his death! I cannot believe it! Whereupon Dr. Martin replied, I do not believe St. Paul was able to have so strong a faith on this matter as he asserts. In truth, I cannot, alas, believe so firmly as I preach, talk, and write, and as other people think I believe, and it would not be quite good for us to do all that God commands, for he would thereby be deprived of his divinity, and would become a liar, and could not remain true. The authority of St. Paul, too, would be overturned, for he says in Romans, God hath concluded all things under sin, in order that he might have mercy on all men. Unquote. End of section 26